Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need these words that you've given us today. We need your spirit, Lord, to appreciate the words, to love the words, to put them into practice in our lives. And Lord, so we pray we'll do that today. We'll listen with attentive ears and hear the very words of life from you from Psalm 139. Father, I also pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, that you will draw them to you, make it very uh, clear that there is not life outside of Christ. Uh, Be with us now, Father, as we are going to find out and remember you are always near. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In your bulletin, there's an outline for today's sermon. And uh, it has a title and then it has a little thing that you can fill in. So if you want to follow along to track the sermon's progress. Or if you're my son, to know the answer to his question every week is, is the sermon almost over yet? Uh, This will tell you if the sermon's almost over yet, Finnan. The title of this sermon is Far Too Wonderful. And... It comes from a song, this is a fun fact for you, it comes from a song written by the second greatest Christian artist ever. So if you remember the first time I preached up here a couple months ago, I told everybody, I just reminded everybody what the greatest Christian artist was of all time. And so this one comes from the second greatest artist. And and the reason I point this out is because this psalm is so rich and so deep, you could spend months, maybe years, maybe even decades, and not exhaust its truths. And so trying to come up with a few pithy words to summarize it is a bit of a challenge. Uh, So I picked Far Too Wonderful. Again, song from the second greatest artist. Finnan, still not the Newsboys, sorry. Tim, still not Rich Mullins, though he's got a great song about this psalm. Uh, Not him. If Josh were here, I was going to say not Kanye West, because I know Josh is a huge Kanye West fan, but he's not even here to get that joke. So um, this psalm is about uh, so many truths about God. God sees all. God is everywhere present. He's the source and sustainer of all life. We read this psalm during Right to Life, which is really appropriate that Jason prayed for that today. Um, about you know, the, the misery of abortion and, and, the, and the sinfulness of that plague in our country. This psalm touches on so many things. It's beautiful, it's instructive, and it's far too wonderful as our title goes. You may have noticed we made Psalm 139 our theme today, right? Our prayer, our call, our benediction. Uh, thanks to Jason again for doing the reading. It's just I wanted everybody to get the psalm over and over again to get it into your bones and spirit. And with that, let's start. So verses 1 through 6, God is all-knowing, all-knowing. The theological term is omniscience. Listen to David, 1 through 4 of Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. The first line states the principle, Lord, you have known me. You have searched me and known me. One of the blessings of a small church like Crossroads, and there's quite a few visitors here today, but I'll tell you, one of the blessings of this small church is that we all know each other. We know each other by name. Uh, I may date myself here, but it's kind of like Cheers. Anybody remember the TV show Cheers? It's kind of like that here. Without maybe some of the other, you know, there's no bar. There's no Woody (laughs) serving up drinks. Uh, But here everybody knows your name. That was kind of the byline of Cheers. I know you. You know me. But even then, you know, our knowledge of each other is limited. I can see what you do. You can hear what I say. And vice versa. But your thoughts are hidden from me and mine are definitely hidden from you. At the Vance's pool party this week, we were talking about how long we had all been married. And we were comparing, uh, you know, how many decades some of us had been married. Uh, the only one that was kind of left out, and I apologize, that was the Cars, who are pretty much newlywed still at only 15 years being married compared to the rest of us. And when you're married to somebody, you actually get even more intimacy in knowing their thoughts, right, and, and their actions and what they're going to do. You just become more of of a single person. But even then, their true mind and heart is beyond our own comprehension, what they're truly thinking and believing. And in fact, I would argue, and I think you would agree if you think about it, you don't even know your own mind and heart most of the time. You don't have a clear understanding of your own mind and heart. And the reason for this is simple, it's sin. Sin does this, it blinds us to the realities of our own inner life. We don't even see ourselves clearly. And so again, our thoughts and emotions are a mystery to us. Here's the truth. God's knowledge knowledge of us is perfect. He sees our actions, he hears our every word. But more than this, he even knows our thoughts. Ouch, right? He even knows our thoughts. For some of us, that can be frightening. He sees with perfect clarity. And from Hebrews 4.13, he says this. No creature is hidden from his sight. But all, and I emphasize the all, are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So consider that, naked and exposed. You should feel like David felt. Actually surrounded, trapped, vulnerable before God. And this is why he says in verse 5, you hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hands upon me. Now what I found out in, study, in the study of this is the word him is often translated as besieged in the Old Testament. Besieged. The word besiege, if you don't know, is literally to mean surround a city with an army and to attack it, right? God has surrounded David and trapped him. 
He has besieged him. And in verse 6, David confesses the knowledge of this is overwhelming. Like it's overwhelming to him. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. So I hope you get an appreciation. You kind of feel this way when you contemplate the knowledge and the power and the glory of God. We should feel overwhelmed by God. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. It can be great comfort to know that he's surrounding us. It can be good to stand in awe of him and to know that God is good and to confess that God is beyond us. In verses 7 through 12, God is all present, all present. The theological term for this is omnipresence. So we had omniscience, 1 through 6, 7 through 12 is omnipresence. In verse 7, David speaks to God and he asks him, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And that desire to flee, is that something new? No, we know the desire to flee from God is as old as the fall. Man's been trying to flee from God since the beginning. And people try, but they can't hide from God. There is nowhere, there is nowhere that God is not. So let me ask you this, where is God? If somebody were to ask you, where is God? What would you say? Well, he's in heaven. We say that a lot. And this is true. God is enthroned in the heavenly. But he's also here with us. The heavens and the earth are created realms, but God is not confined to either. He is omnipresent. So he is here with us today. He is with you when you go home and drive home in your car. He is with you. And so one reaction is, Lord, you see all, you know all. I want to run. Where can I go? He's everywhere. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, this is David speaking, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. What is Sheol? You know, that word comes up a lot in the Psalms. It's an old, old Testament term. What is Sheol? Somebody asks you, hey, they ask you, hey, where is God? And you answer that one, you know, got, got that one right. And the next question is, what is Sheol? You may know this place is Hades or maybe hell. It's called that in the New Testament. But Sheol, from David's perspective, is a little different because before the resurrection of Christ, the bodies of all those who died went to the grave and their souls went to Sheol before the resurrection of Christ. 
The righteous went and the unrighteous went. But their experiences were very different in that place. The unrighteous who died, unrighteous who died in their sins were tormented in Sheol. The righteous were justified through their faith in the Messiah to come, and they were comforted there. You might remember this in the Gospels as Abraham's bosom. You hear it referred to. <clears throat> when Christ rose from the dead, he made all things new. All things new. And changes took place even in Sheol. And so now, and this is probably what you're familiar with, when the righteous pass from this world, their souls go not to Sheol, but where? Right into the blessed presence of God, right? For Christ won that victory through his resurrection. So when believers die today, bodies in the grave, spirit to God. Their soul goes to God, for he has set those captives free. <clears throat> One more time, let me remind you to be absent from the body, as the scriptures say, is to be present with the Lord. So today, it is only the unrighteous dead who are in Sheol. So David says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there, and if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So I, and I'm sorry for the quiz today, but I was feeling kind of like it was time for a quiz. Is God present in Sheol? Third question, is God present in Sheol? I think many assume that he's not. God wouldn't be there. But that's a misconception, for there's nowhere that God is not present. He's present everywhere. So the difference isn't between, the difference between heaven and Sheol is not whether God's there or not, because he is there. It's the way that he's present in Sheol. And I don't know if this is new to you or if this is a, a good reminder, but just remember this is really important. In heaven, God is present to eternally bless his redeemed. And he lavishes on them with his love and his grace and care. In Sheol, God is eternally present and he pours out his wrath and his judgment upon sin. Love and grace in heaven, wrath and justice in Sheol, but God is in both places. And I, I promise, <laughs> this is the last quiz question, I think. Actually, I can't promise. I think it's the last quiz question. Uh, you've maybe heard this said, and I, I know I've said this before, that God, maybe you've said this or you think this, God cannot dwell. God cannot dwell in the presence of sin. And so the question is, is that true? Can God dwell in the presence of sin or can he not? Now, how would you answer that if somebody asked you that? The answer, of course, is yes, he can dwell in the presence of sin. And here's why, because he's present in this world, and this world is 
full of sin. Full of sin. This church, we're, there's some of us probably sinning right now. But the Lord is here. God is here. In verses 9 through 10, David considers another place. How about the sea? How about the big ocean? Can I hide there? And David says this, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. God is there too. How about the darkness of night? Can David hide there? Can we hide there? Can we hide in the darkness of night? A lot of sin happens in the night. Can we hide there? David says, verse 11, If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. People of God, it may not surprise you, God is there too. Dark light, land, sea, he is there. David is out of options, we are out of options. He has considered it all. He has considered it all. In the spiritual realm, God is in the heavens. And he is in Sheol. In the earthly realm, he's present on land. And he's in the depths of the sea. He sees in the light of the day, and he sees in the darkness of the night. David is hemmed in on every side. There's no escape from his presence. And that's true for David. That's true for me, and that's true for all of you. There is no escape from his presence. Verses 13 through 18, God is all creative. All creative. These are the right to life verses. Um, I think it's in January where we often pray and dedicate some time to combat the horrors of abortion in this country. Um, you know, the answer, I'm not going to ask you the question, the answer is one every 30 seconds, I believe, if you do the math on, on babies you know, killed in this country through abortion. It's horrible. Um, it's not the unforgivable sin. You know, it's uh, Christ's blood covers all sins. But it is a great scourge on this nation and in our hearts. In verses 13 through 18, David goes even deeper into his contemplation of, of God's omnipresence. Now, this is, I really want you to think about this. There's two different ways of speaking about God's omnipresence. We just talked about that God is everywhere present, even here today with us right now. But it's another thing to say that God is everywhere presence, present and he's the source and sustainer of all things seen and unseen. 
So in other words, is he here, but he's just hands off? Is he just here and just watching? He's just a passive observer? The answer is no. He's here, and he's intimately here because he's our creator and sustainer. Romans 11.36 says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. He is here and keeping all things together. He is making all things work. He's not just present. He's active in his creation. Listen to verses 13 through 18 and consider how God is here with us as that source and sustainer. David says this, For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. When David says you form my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb, he's talking about your soul and body. Again, probably not a surprise, but a great reminder. There was a time... You to probably think, for some of you, you got to think back a ways when you were not. Like, you were born, right? But before that, physically, you were not. There was a time when I was not. He made you and he made me. And I know you've heard this before, probably from your mom, but you are special. Your mom probably told you you were special many times. And you are special. She was, she was right then, like she's probably right in all things. If it's your mother, she's right in all things. You are special. You are unique. There's none like you. None. Even if you have a twin, your twin is different than you. You know, fingerprints are different. Your thoughts are different. You are special. You are made in God's image. You are unique. Your mind, your mind, your heart, your personality, everything that makes you you came from God. He gave that to you. And in verse 16, we learn that God is not only the source of that body and soul that he gave you, but he's also the source of the days of your life. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written. Every one of them, this is really important, the days that were formed for me, as yet when there were none of them. God has a book. That's what you should know. God has a book. Now, this is not to be taken literally, but metaphorically. People write books. We love to write history books, and that's how it works, right? History happens, and then we write a book looking back on the history that happened. That's not this book. We write those books after the events occurred, 
God wrote this book concerning the days of each one of your lives when there was none of them. When as yet there was none of them, the psalm says. Your life was written before the foundation of the world began. That should give you pause. That should make you sit and reflect. Now sometimes we can bristle a bit. You may have heard this as predestination. That's what it is. And the relationship between God writing our lives and our freedom can be tough. And it can be difficult and mysterious to understand. But the scriptures are quite clear. That's how God works. God is the source of the days of our lives. He formed them. He wrote his book concerning us before the world began. Number four, God is all holy. All holy. We've just been reminded that the Lord sees our words, deeds, our thoughts, intentions of our heart. Even at night, he sees that. We're just, when, even when we're alone and we're thinking, oh, it's just one website, it's just a click or two. Nobody's going to see that. God sees it. He knows those angry words that you say to your spouse behind her back. Yuck. That's true. And if it's true, we can't flee from his presence, for he's everywhere. As the source and sustainer of all things, what shall we do? Well, verse 19 through 24 shows us the way. Point number one, turn from sin. We must turn from our sin. This is what David describes in 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. The words sound harsh, but what David's saying here needs to be taken in context. God, he's considered God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and he's choosing not to flee from God, but to run to God. He wants to be found on God's side. And so he prays for God's justice, and he wants to separate himself from the wicked and bloodthirsty. It's the same message for us today, for all of us here at Crossroads. Now, Tim Kinney preached, this, preached Psalm 1 a couple months ago, and he reminded us that there are two paths to life. There's the way of the righteous, and there's the way of the wicked. You want the way of the righteous. Flee from sin and run to God. Draw near to him and be found on his side. Secondly, pursue righteousness and eternal life. David's not being smug here when he says this. Search me and know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David is not self-righteous. He knows he was a flawed and sinful person. We know he was a, sin, a sinful person, right? And he wrote in Psalm 51.3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Instead, he's claiming to have a true and sincere love for God and faith in his heart. And he's asking the Lord 
to purify him further. He concludes the psalm with these words, lead me in the way everlasting. Now in conclusion, Tim, that's for you, in conclusion. What about the wicked? What about those who have rejected Christ? That's all good. They really have said, no, I don't want to turn from my sin. I don't want to pursue righteousness and eternal life. No, thank you. What's their reality? Well, they're still hemmed, on in, they're hemmed in on every side by God. They're still besieged by God, who, let's remember, is all-seeing, everywhere present, holy and just. And these, these ones who have rejected, these people who have rejected, they're miserable. I can guarantee you they are miserable in their sin. They have suppressed God's truth and unrighteousness, and they did not retain God in their thinking. These words should sound familiar. They should have known God by his creation, by being created in his image, but they didn't. They did not honor him. Their thoughts have become futile and foolish. So God gave them up. Sexual impurity, homosexuality, and to defile their bodies. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, and they made their own gods and put themselves in God's place. Does this sound familiar? Maybe not, hopefully not for us, but it sounds, if you look outside these doors, it should sound very familiar. Look around at our world, our country, as Tim Carr talked about and prayed for, our neighborhoods, and see the misery created by sin. And where's the hope for all this misery? We know it's there. We see it. It's obvious. Where's the hope? Some might say, well, the hope is we got to get Trump back in office. That would fix things. We need political help. I think it's safe to say, I hope you would agree with me, that our country has shattered into about a thousand rebellious pieces. It has become Humpty Dumpty, and Humpty Dumpty doesn't offer any hope. What about the church? Some would say, oh, not the church. It's flabby and weak. And... I would agree with this part, we are under attack. The church is very much under attack. The gospel's under attack. The Bible's under attack. Christianity itself is under attack. Even basic biology, basic biology is under attack. I would agree with that part, but the church is not flabby and weak. The church is anything but flabby and weak. Some would say what you're seeing with the church looks like this. It's the sun. The church is the sun setting in the west. We see a little glimmer of the light as it's about ready to set on the horizon. It's going down. 
the darkness is overtaking the church as it sets. So we, as believers, should just kick back, sit on the beach, watch the sunset. From John, hear these words. In him, this is Christ, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me read the last part again. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What if instead I told you that you're not facing the west, you're actually facing the east? And the sun's not setting, it's actually rising. The darkness is fleeing the light of the rising sun, which is the church. The church is in its pre-dawn time. The church is just getting started. The church is the rising sun, and it's coming for that darkness. Here's the hope for all that misery. We're hemmed in on every side by a father who is all-seeing, everywhere present, holy and just. But we have the spirit that blows where it wishes and has every intention of bringing life to this world. And we have a savior, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and who is with us always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. All of that is far too wonderful, far too wonderful, but that is the truth. Let's pray. Father, your words are life. Psalm 139 is a testimony to who you are, a God who is everywhere, present, sustaining, and loving us through your creation. You have made us. You wrote our lives before the world began. And we love you and praise you. Father, thank you for this time that we've had. Thank you for this church. Thank you for our visitors here today, Lord. Pray that they were blessed by your word. How precious to us, Lord, are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. If we could count them, they are more than the sand. We awake and you are still with us. And amen.